0: Good afternoon. Welcome to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. How are you today? I'm glad you have a chance to join me for an hour of, oh, intrigue, suspense. No, no, that wrong hour. It's an hour of uh, knowledge, information, opinion, entertainment, not financial advice as I'm not a financial advisor. I'm merely a CPA trying to help you. Oh, guide your way through the navigation of craziness that the 21st century has brought to everybody's money, accounts, taxes, banks, you name it. It's all gone kind of crazy. And I'm here to be your second opinion guy to help you make sure you don't lose everything you've saved. And I would say that's my main goal. If you've been listening to Business Buzz, you'll, you'll notice that about me. I'm always looking out for you. I'm also here to let you know that if you ever need any kind of financial help, uh, tax advice, tax planning, or just somebody to kind of review your income tax situation, I offer a free consultation. I'm on Mangrove Avenue. I've been there for a while. And you can contact me. The number is 530-895-3353. And I'm always happy to meet a new person. The initial consultation thing, I think most people offer that, but sometimes they don't. I know sometimes if you need an attorney, I'm not an attorney, but a lot of times you, you go see one of them, you'll get a bill for a couple hundred bucks and you may not have gotten that much information. I'm sure some are better than others, but I'm tried, I am try to be very helpful. So if you ever need any tax help or just some overall f- advice or second opinions, I do offer that free consultation and I'm happy to help. And- And I'd like to meet you. Not only do we have the usual issues with taxes this year, but now we have a whole new tax law that's changing the way we have to look at certain things. There may be some big savings for you. There may be some tax increases for some of you. But most, I would say, based on my knowledge of my client base, there's at least 90% that are getting tax reduction in 2018. I would therefore say the odds are you are going to save taxes with the new tax law. But I can't guarantee that, of course. Nobody can. I wanted to start off today with just a few interesting uh, business-related quotes. I think quotes are fun. I've always enjoyed them. I've got a few that if you're in business, you'll understand these. Some of them don't take a real business background to understand. They're just kind of entertaining. One I like is a guy, I, and I didn't look up who all these people are when I look up these business quotes. I've heard, I think I've heard this name. It's Michael LeBouff, L-E-B-O-E-U-F. His quote about business is, a satisfied customer is the best business strategy of all. And I agree with that. If I have a new customer or a returning customer, as long as I know I take good care of them, my business is going to do fine. That's all I need to do. The problem, of course, comes when you have a lot of customers and there's a lot of deadlines and there's a lot of paperwork and maybe a staff person gets sick and can't come in that day. That's where you have problems. But when you can have a satisfied customer generally, your business is going to do well. I can't think of a business that didn't do well that had a lot of satisfied customers. So I would say you're better off just looking to satisfy your customer and think about the money afterwards. The money will happen if you satisfy your customers. A business quote from, oh, none other than John D. Rockefeller, that, that wonderful titan of industry. A friendship founded on business is better than a business founded on friendship. I can vouch for that with some of my client stories over the years. When they've tried to do a partnership business with friends, a lot of times it doesn't work out. I'm sure it works out sometimes, but yeah, doing a business with a friend or a partnership with a relative or something to that effect, not always good. I have one client who actually is looking to find out where all the money went from a family-related partnership investment. It's like, whoops, the brother didn't pay him back. And that does happen sometimes. Here's a quote about networking. I like the idea of networking, and this is uh, from a woman named Sally Krawcheck. I'm not sure who she is, K-R-A-W-C-H-E-C-K. Networking has been cited as the number one unwritten rule of success in business. Who you know really impacts what you know. I like that one. Turns out a lot of times it's who you know that brings you the best business, and it doesn't have anything to do with luck. It doesn't have anything to do with the ad you might have paid for in the local paper or on the local radio. It's just a matter of who you knew and they talked to a friend and all of a sudden you got a great new customer out of the blue. It's because of who you know. This is I found this in the business quote section, but this applies to just about anything. And I really like this one because I really like the author. I'm sure you've heard of this author named Mark Twain. Whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it is time to pause and reflect. That one speaks for itself. Majority rules isn't always the best idea. Sometimes it can be, but not always. Here's another interesting business quote. I like this one. And this applies to more than business also. This probably applies to most of life. If one does not know to which port one is sailing, no wind is favorable. I like that. And that could apply to lots of things, not just business. And one last quote for today from Robert Schuller. I believe that's the, he's like a minister, Robert Schuller Is he the one from Crystal Cathedral in Anaheim, maybe? Failure doesn't mean you are a failure. It just means you haven't succeeded yet. I like that one. That old thing about if at first you don't succeed, try, try again, that's sort of the same idea. How can you ever succeed if you don't fail first? What are the odds of getting it right the first time? On the subject of failure, Business Buzz likes to keep you informed of important current events in business. One of my favorite subjects is, you guys all know who it is, it's Elon Musk of Tesla, and I'm not going to burden you with a lot of that, but I do want to keep up on that story. The reason I like this story is is that this is something you may own and you're not even aware you own it. You may have a retirement plan that owns mutual funds, that owns Tesla stock. So you may own some of this and not even be aware. It might not be that you called up your broker and said, oh, give me 50 shares of Tesla. You may not even know that you own it. And if it goes down, you could lose part of your money. The article I'm bringing today, it's not a heavy-duty thing. I just want to keep you in the loop on the Tesla subject that I've enjoyed talking about lately because it's just so entertaining. It's almost like a comedy soap opera, but then it's almost a... It could end up being a Shakespearean tragedy, but we won't know that until later. The title of this article is Tesla is a Hope Stock That is Just Not Real fund manager says: Tesla is a hope stock with little chance of success in the car manufacturing inter- industry," a fund manager told CNBC on Tuesday. I'm sure that's today. Embark Group said on CNBC's squawk box Europe Tesla's share price took a nosedive Monday after the company's chief executive Elon Musk abruptly halted plans to take the firm private. Now, I told you about that a couple weeks ago, and it was kind of like a 3 a.m. tweet that he mentioned taking it private. I'm not sure it was ever a plan. Musk had shocked investors on August 7th by announcing his aim to remove Tesla from the stock market at $420 per share. The firm's shares have shed almost 16% off their value since. Now, remember, 16% is almost one-sixth. Days after that initial announcement, Musk said that Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund had approached him multiple times about taking the firm off the public market. Despite uh, the bearish thoughts on Tesla's auto manufacturing abilities, the analyst said there was hope for the firm in its self-driving technology. Well, I personally don't want to be the guinea pig that gets in those self-driving car. I know I've heard of some of these already being tried out here and there the only bit that has got hope is the autonomous driving but the idea to compete on a platform basis with cars it's losing money every time it sells one he's talking about Tesla the investment manager said that the lack of a network for servicing Tesla cars was also a point of concern some international customers for instance have bemoaned repair waiting times as parts need to be shipped from overseas He's losing money every time he sells a car today and he can't service them. Ask Norway. They can't actually get the car serviced because there's no network to service them. It's just not real. Norway is considered an electric vehicle friendly country due to subsidies aimed at improving improving affordability and an overall target of going all electric by twenty one twenty five. Tesla continues to be a transformational company, especially on Model 3 production and demand, said this technology research guy. However, this last month has been a nightmare for Tesla bulls, and the street continues to put the company in the investor penalty box, given all the uncertainty surrounding the name in the near term with the going private fiasco front and center. So this is just a, a little recap I wanted to give you. Not all, not everybody thinks that Tesla is a great investment. I'm just kind of enjoying the ride here with all these funny stories that come out. I personally don't own this unless it's in part of a, like I say for you, there might be part of a mutual fund here and there. I'm not that worried about it. I, uh, I don't overload in anything high tech. I'm very conservative and I, yes, I do know I've missed this run up in tech stocks. I noticed the NASDAQ index, which is the tech index, is over 8,000 lately. It was at 5,000 when it crashed in the year 2000. I do know that that 5,000 did not get, it didn't come back to 5,000 for a long, long time after 2000, but now it's at 8,000. The other problem with those indexes is they change which companies are in which index in other words the index changes what makes up the index. That's why you just you just never know what the real what the real world's doing right now. I have one other article I've got to share. I wasn't too aware of this. It just this article just came out. It's called Atlas Mugged. If ever if you guys have heard of a book called Atlas Shrugged, this is This article is titled Atlas Mugged, Elizabeth Warren's Plan to Nationalize Corporations. And this is from my favorite news website, Zero Hedge, which I've encouraged you guys to check out so you can be better informed than 90% of your neighbors. I'm going to try to find the apropos part of this. So the book Atlas Shrugged, the lesson of the book is that prosperity is driven by entrepreneurs and capital and you need freedom and free markets to achieve it. Rand's plot twist that Ann Rand is the author of Atlas Shrugged. The plot twist is what would happen if all the entrepreneurs, the drivers of a dynamic economy went on strike. She takes the ideals of socialism where business is dictated by government mandate for the benefit of workers and the people to its logical, destructive end. The strike accelerates the collapse of society, and the strikers reemerge to rebuild society. It was a story that Rand knew well being a Russian emigre fleeing Bolshevik terror. Enter Here's more, more of this article. Enter Senator Elizabeth Warren and her proposed Accountable Capitalism Act. It is straight out of Atlas Shrugged. She proposes to regulate corporations with gross revenues of $1 billion or more, requiring them to obtain a federal corporate charter as a United States corporation. I'm going to come up on break number one, but I'll get back to this in a minute. They would be regulated by a bureaucracy under the Office of United States Corporations. These corporations must be operated to, quote, create a general public benefit and must consider how its profit-making activities affect not only their shareholders, but their employees, suppliers, community, and societal factors, and the local and global environment. Well, you can kind of see where that's going. I won't belabor it, but first of all, my biggest problem with that kind of law, I will fill you in on that on the other side of the break. Stay tuned to Business Buzz. This is Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'll be right back.
1: Rick Box, founder of Unconventional Business Network, formerly Integrity Resource Center, with today's Integrity Moment.
0: In high school, my journalism teacher taught that news was reporting the facts without bias. If I interjected bias into a news article, my grade suffered. In my opinion, the craft of journalism has lost its way. The American Press Institute says, journalism attempts to be fair and accurate. It does this through objective methods and managing bias. Unbiased reporting is hard to find anymore, and it's negatively impacting our culture. Some industries eventually drift away from their original purpose. When we do, we can negatively impact our customers. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. God has a purpose for you and your industry. Occasionally check yourself and your industry for Mission Drift. To
1: learn more about Unconventional Business Network and doing business God's way, visit unconventionalbusiness.org. That's unconventionalbusiness.org. Mark it down. When you truly praise the Lord, you always see His preeminence. There's no one like Him. Don't bring him down to human level. Don't make out like he's one among many who could have done something. No, only the Lord can do what he does. David Hockey shares why God and God alone is worthy of our worship and praise this week on Hope for Today. Tune in for Hope for Today weekdays at 8 a.m. here on KKXX.
0: back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn CPA. I'm glad you have a chance to spend part of your busy afternoon with me. I enjoy spreading a little bit of cheer, a little information. This is not financial advice. I'm not a f- certified financial planner. I don't play one on television. I'm a CPA who helps people with their taxes and I love to give second opinions because, well, you know what you've heard about opinions. I was talking about this proposed law from Elizabeth Warren. If I'm not mistaken, she's the senator who claims to be American Indian, but some people claim she's not. I don't don't follow that too much, and I especially don't want to bring that political stuff to business, Buzz. What I was saying about this corporate uh, accountable capitalism act, what I don't like about these types of laws is this who is going to decide and outline and decide what is the definition of community and societal factors and the local and global environment that's the part of these types of laws i usually frown on who's going to decide what is societal this local that global environment that uh, i'm to me Honestly, I'm really, really tired of this whole global environment thing. We can clean up our air all we want, but if all these other countries do other things, what are we going to do? I know there's a lot of agreements. There's one that we left. I'm just not big on the global thing, and that's just my, that's just my personal opinion. Now, the next segment of Business Buzz, speaking of business, there's one business that everyone at some point is going to be involved in, either as a supplier or as a customer, most of us would be customers, but a lot of us would be suppliers in one form or another. The area of business I'm talking about is the business of medicine. How many of us have never been to a doctor? How many of us don't have health insurance, which is required for us to own? How many of us possibly work at a hospital. So that's a that's a supplier even though you're not a direct medical doctor. The reason I'm bringing this up on Business Buzz is when I'm planning the Business Buzz show, I like to get something that I know you'll find interesting. The reason I like what I'm going to read you next is because when I first read it, I was amazed, I was appalled, I was shocked, I laughed, I cried. It's probably been 30 years since I read this book, and I remember how much I enjoyed reading it. I'm going to have, I've got part of it here today, and it's the business of medicine that we're going to talk about, because I know we all are involved in it in one way or another. So nobody can say this does not apply to me. It does apply to you. If it hasn't yet, it will. The name of the book is Murder by Injection. The author is Eustace Mullins, M-U-L-L-I-N-S. He's one of my favorite authors, and this is one of my favorite books. The chapter that I'm going to read some of today, I know you'll find this entertaining, so stay with me. Don't, don't, don't start that nap yet. I'm going to read part of a chapter called Quacks on Quackery. It's actually chapter two in this book. And it starts off with the definition of a quack, an ignorant pretender to medical or surgical skill. And then it says quackery, charlatanry. And then I think it's quoting from some something from 1783. It says a potent quack long versed in human ills who first insults the victim whom he kills. Oh, that's from the Oxford English Dictionary. Okay. I'm going to try not to belabor all this, but I'm going to give you a real good history of the AMA today. The first significant figure in American medicine, according to Jeffrey Marks, was the theologian Cotton Mather, the son of Increase Mather, the president of Harvard University. Cotton Mather wrote many theological works, but also wrote a full-length medical work. His medical letters drew heavily on local Indian lore. He also pondered the mental factor in illness, noting that a cheerful heart does good like a medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. Mather may have been the first and last theologian to be interested in the practice of American medicine. The next figure of importance in American medicine was a Dr. Nathan Smith Davis, 1817 to 1904. After apprenticing under Dr. Daniel Clark in upstate New York, Davis moved to New York in 1847. As early as 1845, he had demanded that the Medical Society of the State of New York correct the more flagrant abuses in medical education, insisting that the four months of instruction then in vogue be increased to a period of six months. Well, right there we can tell that there used to be only four months education required to be a medical doctor says, on May 11, 1846, he convened a group of physicians in New York to form the nucleus of the American Medical Association. The organization took on formal status the following year in Philadelphia. On May 5, 1847, the official date of American Medical Association came into being. The 100 delegates to the New York meeting had swelled to over 250 at Philadelphia. They soon formed state organizations in a number of states. Smith later moved to Chicago, where he joined the faculty of Rush Medical School, In 1883, when the AMA founded its journal, he became its first editor. Despite the good intentions of its founder, Dr. Davis, the AMA remained moribund for some 50 years. In 1899, the organization took a giant step forward with the arrival of one Dr. George H. Simmons from Nebraska. Simmons, who throughout his life was known perhaps derisively as Doc, is now remembered as the preeminent American quack. Born in Morton, England, Simmons immigrated to the United States in 1870. Settling in the Midwest, he began his career as a journalist. It is interesting that the two other dominant figures in 20th century American medicine, Dr. Morris Fishbein and Albert Lasker, also began their careers as journalists. Fishbein remained a journalist all his life. Simmons became the editor of the Nebraska Farmer in Lincoln, Nebraska. Several years later, he decided to improve his finances by launching on a career of unparalleled medical quackery. Interestingly enough, the AMA in 1868 had formerly declined quackery as the sale or administration of drugs or treatments that are not approved by legally constituted medical authorities. Simmons ignored this requirement. No one has ever able to No one has ever been able to determine that he had studied anywhere to qualify for a medical degree. Nevertheless, he began to advertise that he was a licentiate of the Rotunda Hospital of Dublin, referring presumably to Dublin, Ireland. In fact, Dublin Hospital had never issued any licenses, nor was it authorized to do so. No one ever bothered to raise the question as to why Simmons, who had supposedly arrived in the United States as a duly licensed physician, chose instead to practice journalism for some years. He also advertised that he had spent a year and a half in the largest hospitals in London, although he refrained from making any claims as to what capacity, whether as a patient, an orderly, or other functionary. Years later, he obtained a diploma by mail from one of the nation's flourishing diploma mills, Rush Medical College in Chicago, while maintaining a full-time medical practice in Lincoln, in Lincoln. There is no record that he ever set foot on the campus of Rush Medical College prior to obtaining this degree. His protege, Morris Fishbein, also attended Rush Medical College. There was some question as to whether Fishbein ever actually graduated. Years later, in his time of influence, he became a professor there, specializing in teaching the public relations aspects of medicine. In their definitive work, The Story of Medicine in America, an exhaustive and detailed compilation, the authors Jeffrey Marks and William Beatty make no mention of either Simmons or Fishbine, seemingly a glaring omission, as they are the two most notorious practitioners in our medical history. Apparently realizing that these two men were the two most famous quacks in medical history, the authors prudently decided to ignore them. I'll be coming up on break number two in a minute. I hope you enjoy this story as much as I do. Wait. Wait, it gets better. In Who's Who, Simmons notes that he practiced medicine in Lincoln from 1884 to 1899. He lists his degree as LM Dublin 1884. This raises further questions. Simmons had immigrated to the United States in 1870. He remained continuously in Lincoln from 1870 to 1899 when he went to Chicago. For some reason, he forbore the listing of the mail-order diploma from Rush Medical College in his Who's Who listing in the 1936 edition. He had listed it in the 1922 edition as receiving it in 1892. I'll be right back with some more wonderful medical business news. Stay tuned to Business Buzz, I'll be right back. Welcome back to Business Buzz. This is Harold Littlejohn, CPA. We're talking about the business of medicine, some of the history. I love this story. Okay, we're talking about Mr. Simmons, who had problems with uh, where he got his degrees, et cetera, et cetera. It says, here again, no one later raised the question of his educational record, which showed that he only began his medical education in Dublin after he had come to the United States. here we go doc simmons advertisements in lincoln which is lincoln nebraska which we have reproduced here it's in the book employed a standard phraseology of the time quote a limited number of lady patients can be accommodated at my residence this was a coded notification that he was engaged in the practice of abortion he also operated a beauty and massage parlor on the premises as part of a lincoln institute of which he was apparently the only official His advertisements also identified him as a homeopathic physician, although he would soon embark on a career with the AMA to destroy the profession of homeopathy in the United States. His advertisements announced that he treats all medical and surgical diseases of women. Now this gets better. Having learned about the American Medical Association, I'll call it the AMA, Simmons, always in search of more status, formed a Nebraska chapter, the Nebraska Medical Association. His talents as an organizer came to the attention of the Chicago headquarters, and he was summoned to take over the editorship of the Journal of the AMA. Thus, Doc Simmons came to the AMA not as a physician, but as a journalist. He found that the AMA was drifting along with no one capable of implementing a national policy. The situation was made to order for a man of his capacities and drive. He soon named himself as secretary and general manager of the AMA, launching the organization on its dictatorial and self-aggrandizing policies, which it has maintained to the present day. All monies accruing to the AMA passed through Simmons' hands, and he personally supervised every detail of the operations. He soon found an able and willing lieutenant and a man who had formerly served as a secretary of the Kentucky State Board of Health. He seems to have been a man after Simmons' own heart, for he had been arrested after examiners found a shortage of some $62,000 in his accounts. As a member in good standing of the state bureaucracy, he managed to obtain an official pardon from the governor of Kentucky with the gentle admonition that it might be best for him to settle elsewhere. Chicago was only a short train ride away where he found that Simmons was overwhelmed by his credentials. This gentleman, Dr. E. E. Hyde, died in 1912 from leukemia. This proved to be a fortuitous circumstance for another journalist waiting in the wings, Dr. Morris Fishbein. Fishbein had apparently completed his studies at Rush Medical College, but he had not yet been awarded his diploma. In any case, he did not want to become a doctor. He had desultorily served as an intern at Durand Hospital for a few months, but he was unwilling to comply with the then-regulations requiring a two-year internship in an accredited hospital. He was seriously considering a career as a circus acrobat and had been working part time as an extra in an opera company. He had also learned of a possible opening at the AMA and had been doing some part time writing there during Dr. Hyde's terminal illness. Simmons had also found Fishbind to be a man after his own heart. When Dr. Hyde died, Simmons at once offered the youth a very handsome starting salary of one hundred a month—a high figure for 1913. Fishbein found a home at the AMA. He did not leave until 1949 when he was literally kicked out. With the advent of Fishbein, the American Medical Association was now firmly in the hands of the nation's two most aggressive quacks, Simmons, who had practiced medicine for years, unembarrassed by the fact that he had no medical degree which would hold up under the light of day, and Morris Fishbein, who admitted under oath in 1938 that he had never practiced medicine a day in his life. Because Doc Simmons, as he was genially known, had never shown any motivation in his career except greed, he soon realized that the enormous power of which the AMA was capable had in effect launched him into a gold mine. He was not slow to request certain considerations in return for the favor or the goodwill of the AMA. First and foremost was its seal of approval for new products. Since the AMA early on had virtually no laboratory, testing equipment, or research staff, the seal of approval was obtained by green research, that is, the laborious determination of how much the supplicant could afford to pay and how much it might be worth to him. At first, some pharmaceutical manufacturers resented this arrangement and refused to pay. The leader of this opposition was one Dr. Wallace C. Abbott, who had founded Abbott Labs in 1900. Simmons met him head-on by refusing to approve a single product Product of Abbott Laboratories, no matter how many were submitted. This standoff continued for some time until one morning, Doc Simmons was visibly shaken to see Dr. Abbott towering over him in his office. Well, sir, he stammered, and just what can I do for you? I just came down to hear from you personally, Dr. Abbott replied. Why, not one of my products has ever been approved by the AMA. That's not really my department, sir, Doc Simmons replied. I'll be glad to check with our research department and find out what the problem is. Is there any way I could speed up your inquiry, asked Dr. Abbott. Simmons was overjoyed. At last, the stubborn chemist was beginning to see things his way. I'll be glad to do whatever I can, he said. There is something you can do, said Dr. Abbott. If you would be so good as to look over these documents, it might help you to make up your mind. He spread a number of papers out on Doc Simmons's desk, Simmons immediately realized that he was looking at a complete record of his career, carefully garnered by private detectives who had been hired by Dr. Abbott. There were the full details of the so-called diplomas, record of sex charges brought against Simmons by former patients in Lincoln, and other titillating items, such as charges of medical negligence resulting in the deaths of patients. He knew that he was trapped. All right, said Simmons, just what is it you want? "'All I want is to have the AMA grant approval of my products,' said Dr. Abbott. "'Do you think that is possible now?' "'You've got it,' said Simmons. "'From that day, the products from Abbott's firm, "'which was still called Abbott Biologicals at that time, "'were rushed through the AMA process and marked approved. "'Dr. Abbott never paid one cent for this special treatment.' "'Through the years, various versions of the Abbott-Simmons conflict were repeated.' A whitewashed version appears in Tom Mahoney's Merchants of Life, which claims that Simmons objected to Dr. Abbott's commercialization of the medical profession and wished to teach him a lesson. The Council on Pharmacy and Chemistry not only refused to approve any of Abbott's drugs, but also turned down his request to advertise in the Journal of the AMA and later refused to print his letters of protest. Simmons then lost, launched personal attacks on Dr. Abbott in the Journal in the issues of December 07 and March 08. Simmons' pious claim that he did not wish to see Dr. Abbott commercializing the medical profession rings hollow. Abbott was manufacturing pharmaceutical products for sale. The rub was that he refused to pay the usual shakedown to Simmons. After the imbroglio was settled, S. DeWitt Clue, Abbott's advertising manager, became a bridge-playing crony of Morris Fishbein. A spirited critic of the AMA during its Simmons-Fishmine period, Dr. Emanuel Josephson in New York wrote, The methods which Simmons and his crew used in their battle for a monopoly of medical publications and of advertisements to the profession were often crude and illegitimate. The AMA has openly threatened firms that advertise in media other than their own journals with withdrawal of acceptance of their products. Dr. Josephson described Simmons' practice as conspiracy in restraint of trade and extortion. He further charged, again correctly, that almost every branch of the federal government active in the field of medicine was completely dominated by the association. This was borne out by the present writer who cites many instances later of government agencies actively implementing the most horrendous cases of racketeering by the drug trust. So exhaustive were the controls set in place by Simmons that the president of the AMA, Dr. Nathan B. Van Etten, later filed a sworn affidavit in the New York District Court that he, as president of the AMA, had no authority to accept any monies or enter into any contracts. All such deals were the province of the Chicago headquarters staff. It was later later noted that AMA focuses on protecting physicians' incomes against government intrusion in the practice of medicine this was a case of having their cake and eating it too while steadfastly opposing any government supervision of the medical monopoly the monopolists frequently forced various government agencies to act against anyone who posed a threat to their monopoly having them arrested prosecuted and sent to prison doc simmons lucrative dominance of the american medical association led him into numerous sidelines In 1921, he established the Institute of Medicine in Chicago. This apparently was nothing more than a holding company for his bribes. He had also been enjoying the perquisites of the American success story, a buxom mistress installed in a luxurious Gold Coast apartment. Scoundrel that he was, Simmons was not content to flaunt this liaison to his wife. He also became increasingly cruel in his determination to get rid of her. He then embarked on a classic ploy, the physician attempting to dispose of an unwanted wife by plying her with narcotics, narcotics trying to convince her that she is going insane and hopefully driving her to suicide. After some months of this treatment, his wife fought back by filing suit against him. A highly publicized trial in 1924 ended in his wife's testimony that he had given her heavy doses of narcotics prescribed on the strength of his medical experience and then began proceedings to have her declared insane. This was not such an unusual procedure during that period. It had happened to literally hundreds of wives. However, his wife proved to be tougher than most victims. She testified in court that he had tried to have her framed on a charge of insanity. This trial inspired more than a dozen subsequent books, plays, and movies based on the story of a physician who tries to drive his wife insane through a campaign of administration of drugs and psychological terrorism. The most famous was was Gaslight in which Charles Boyer played the role of Doc Simmons to perfection, the luckless wife being played by Ingrid Bergman. The trial brought Simmons a torrent of unpleasant publicity and forced his retirement as head of the AMA. However, he retained the title of General Editor Emeritus, absenting himself in 1924 until his death in 1937. Morris Fishmine, still operating under his lucky star, was now moved into total dominance of the AMA. Between the two of them, they controlled the AMA for more than a half century. I'll get back to a little more medical business news. I'll be right back on Business Buzz. This is Harold Littlejohn, CPA. Stay tuned.
1: Billions of Dead Things This is Ken Ham, President of the Global Apologetics Ministry of Answers in Genesis. If there was a global flood, as described in Genesis, what would we expect to see? Well, billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. And you know what we do find? Well, billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. We find fossil graveyards with thousands and thousands of animals buried in a jumble. Many of these graveyards feature land and sea creatures buried together. In other places, we find things that had to have been buried rapidly to fossilize. Now, this includes jellyfish, footprints, and even ripple marks. The rocks are crying out with evidence of the flood, if we're willing to listen. Discover more answers when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com. Find thousands of articles, free resources, and so much more when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. We are live outside the home of Joe and Rosie Goddard where a pretty big tickle fight broke out just minutes ago. Sources say their father instigated the laughter. Let's go inside for a comment. (laughs) Apparently they have no comment. Dads, let this be a reminder that it only takes a moment to make a moment. Call 877-4DAD411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council.
0: Welcome back to Business Buzz. I love talking about the business of medicine. I have a brother who's a surgeon. Uh, You know, people worship these guys. Anyway... I uh, this are, I mean this chapter it's got so much goods it's like AMPM too much good stuff I I can't even get through most of it I'm just going to try to give you a few more little tidbits The AMA Council on Pharmacy Pharmacy and Chemistry had effectively solidified its control by amending the official AMA Code of Ethics to prohibit individual physicians from giving any testimonials in favor of any drug this amendment protected the valuable monopoly of AMA headquarters in Chicago. A distinguished scientist and teacher, Dr. Frank Leidston, published a booklet, Why the AMA is Going Backward, in which he stated, The achievement of what the oligarchy of the AMA has boasted most vociferously has been its belated war on proprietaries, quack medical manufacturers, and unproved products. When I recalled a nauseous array of proprietary fakes on the advertisements, on which the oligarchy built its financial prosperity, its holier-than-thou pose is sickening. It was fitting to its psychic constitution that after the AMA has for years done its level best to promulgate the interests and to fatten upon fake manufacturers and professional poisoners of the innocent, it should bite the hand that fed it. Despotic power such as the oligarchy wields over the food and drug manufacturers is dangerous, and human nature being what it is, That power might be expected to sooner or later be to be abused. Dr. Josephson also observed that the history of the AMA's seal of acceptance is replete with betrayals of professional and public trust. Drug products of the highest value have been rejected or their acceptance unwarrantedly delayed. Worthless, dangerous, or deadly food and drugs have been hastily accepted." On April 20th, 1936, Time magazine reported that the AMA was then worth $3.8 million, of which $2 million was in government bonds, $1 million in cash, with an $800,000 headquarters building in Chicago. Time also mentioned another little-known aspect of the AMA medical monopoly. Shoes designed to correct foot trouble must be approved by AMA before a conscientious physician may prescribe them. Just how the AMA had set up this shoe monopoly was not clear. And I could go on and on. In fact, this book, the book is called Murder by Injection. I just looked it up today because I have i have paper copies of this book. But I just looked it up today online. I didn't make a note of the name of the website. But if you search for Murder by Injection Mullins, there's a place that actually has it. And you can click on the button and make it a, what's called a PDF file. So it's very easily readable on your computer. The book was written probably... Well, it's at least 35 years old because I read it in the 1980s. So it's at least 35 years old. It may be 40-something years old. It's an amazing book that everybody should read. This, this chapter I printed out is on uh, quacks on crack quackery, talking about the AMA, which I believe is still running the show. Some of the other chapters, I'm recalling this from memory. I'm not going to bring it up right now. Some of the other chapters, one chapter is a real good chapter all about immunizations and shots. One's all about cancer. It's just an unbelievably good book. And Mr. Mullins has written many, many good books. His name's Eustace Mullins. He I think he died ten or fifteen years ago. But it's definitely one of my all time favorite books. I love murder by injection. Well, I brought so much good stuff today, just like an AM PM store that I'm not going to have time to get through it. So I'll have to save that for, for a future show. I will try to lighten the load here toward the end. One of my favorite topics, especially toward the end of the hour is thinking about time. Now we just went through some time together. I tried to entertain you with those lovely stories. I've brought a small part of a chapter from my favorite book, which is called A Course in Miracles. The name of this chapter is called The Function of Time. And if you think about this, this, this is the kind of thing where, like I said before, the book the goal of the book is peace of mind. There's no other goal. There's no time frame to learn it. It does come with a workbook with 365 lessons, one for each day of the year. But it's not a true lesson book. It's more like you just keep reading these over and over and and enjoying them as you go. You could do one a day, but you wouldn't be done in a year. You'd have to go back through it. I know some people who have already been through the lessons three or four times. It's a lifelong journey once you start reading this book. I'm going to read you a section called The Function of Time because I think it's helpful it's helpful to not be bogged down with your daily life. If you have any kind of stress level at all, wouldn't it be nice to have a method to reduce that stress level and to get some of that peace of mind that this, book, that this book offers if you study it? And that's the way I look at it, and that's the way I treat it. I just treat it as something to make me feel good. So I'm going to read some of The Function of Time. And now the reason why you are afraid of this course should be apparent. For this is a course on love because it is about you. You have been told that your function in this world is healing and your function in heaven is creating. The ego teaches that your function on earth is destruction and you have no function at all in heaven. It would thus destroy you here and bury you here, leaving you no inheritance except the dust out of which it thinks you were made. As long as it is reasonably satisfied with you, as its reasoning goes, it offers you oblivion. When it becomes overtly savage, it offers you hell. Now remember, I'll interject here, the basis of this course is that you have two, two sides of your mind. One is the ego and one is the right mind. So whenever they talk about the ego, they're talking about your worldly your worldly thinking mind that never seems to stop thoughts. The thoughts are constantly going And most of them are either negative or pointless. Okay, I'm going to continue. Yet neither oblivion nor hell is as unacceptable to you as heaven. Your definition of heaven is hell and oblivion, and the real heaven is the greatest threat you think you could experience. For hell and oblivion are ideas that you made up, and you are bent on demonstrating their reality to establish yours. If their reality is questioned, you believe that yours is. For you believe that attack is your reality and that your destruction is the final proof that you were right. Under the circumstances, would it not be more desirable to have been wrong, even apart from the fact that you were wrong? While it could perhaps be argued that death suggests there was life, no one would claim that it proves there is life. Even the past life that death might indicate could only have been futile if it must come to this, and needs this to prove that it was, it was at all. You question heaven, but you do not question this. Yet, you could heal and be healed if you did question it. And even though you know not heaven, might it not be more, be more desirable than death? You have been as selective in your questioning as in your perception. An open mind is more honest than this. The ego has a strange notion of time and it is with this notion that your questioning might well begin. The ego invests heavily in the past and in the end believes that the past is the only aspect of time that is meaningful. Remember that its emphasis on guilt enables it to ensure its continuity by making the future like the past and thus avoiding the present. By the notion of paying for the past in the future, The past becomes the determiner of the future, making them continuous without an intervening present. For the ego regards the present only as a brief transition to the future in which it brings the past to the future by interpreting the present in past terms. Now has no meaning to the ego. The present merely reminds it of past hurts and it reacts to the present as if it were the past. The ego cannot tolerate release from the past, and although the past is over, the ego tries to preserve its image by responding as if it were present. It dictates your reactions to those you meet in the present from a past reference point obscuring their present reality. In effect, if you follow the ego's ego's dictates, you will react to your brother as though he were someone else, and this will surely prevent you from recognizing him as he is. And you will receive messages from him out of your own past, because by making it real in the present, you are forbidding yourself to let it go. You thus deny yourself the message of release that every brother offers you now. The shadowy figures from the past are precisely what you must escape. They are not real and have no hold over you unless you bring them with you. They carry the spots of pain in your mind, directing you to attack in the present in retaliation for a past that is no more. And this decision is one of future pain. Unless you learn that past pain is an illusion, you are choosing a future of illusions and losing the many opportunities you could find for release in the present. The ego would preserve your nightmares and present you from awakening and understanding they are past. Would you recognize a holy encounter if you are merely perceiving it as a meeting with your own past? For you would be meeting no one, and the sharing of salvation, which makes the encounter holy, would be excluded from your sight. The Holy Spirit teaches that you always meet yourself, and the encounter is holy because you are. The ego teaches that you always encounter your past, and because your dreams were not holy, the future cannot be, and the present is without meaning. It is evident that the Holy Spirit's perception of time is the exact opposite of the ego's. The reason is equally clear, for they perceive the goal of time as diametrically opposed. The Holy Spirit interprets time purpose as rendering the need for time unnecessary. He regards the function of time as temporary, serving only his teaching function, which is temporary by definition. His emphasis is therefore on the only aspect of time that can extend to the infinite, for now is the closest approximation of eternity that this world offers." It is in the reality of now without past or future that the beginning of the appreciation of eternity lies. For only now is here and only now presents the opportunities for the holy encounters in which salvation can be found. The ego, on the other hand, regards the function of time as one of extending itself in place of eternity. For like the Holy Spirit, the ego interprets the goal of time as its own. The continuity of past and future under its direction is the only purpose the ego perceives in time and it closes over the present so that no gap in its continuity can occur. Its, continu- its continuity then would keep you in time while the Holy Spirit would release you from it. It is his interpretation of the means of salvation that you must learn to accept if you would share his goal of salvation for you. You too will interpret the function of time as you interpret yours. If you accept your function in the world of time as one of healing, you will emphasize only the aspect of time in which healing can occur. Healing cannot be accomplished in the past. It must be accomplished in the present to release the future. This interpretation ties the future to the present and extends the present rather than the past. But if you interpret your function as destruction, you will lose sight of the present and hold on to the past to ensure a destructive future. And time will be as you interpret it. For of itself it is nothing. That is the section called the function of time. And I like to interpret that very simply. If you can somehow, and that's what the exercises do. This book has 365 exercises. If you can somehow, next time you meet someone... Drop the past. Don't think about anything in your past. Don't think about what reminds... Don't think about who this person reminds you of. Don't think about what somebody else said that sounds like this person. Don't think about who this person looks like. Don't think about the feelings you have for the person this guy reminds you of. What you need to do is be completely in the present moment when you meet somebody new. Don't let the past impressions dictate the way you think about this encounter the course in miracles talks a lot about the holy instant and the holy encounter every time like it says every time you meet someone you're meeting yourself and all i can say is if you give these things a try i think it'll help you might get some peace of mind which is the book's goal i know it helps me a lot When you have a busy business day, you better have some way to calm down and get some peace of mind. I'm Harold Littlejohn CPA. Thanks for joining me on Business Buzz. I'll talk with you next time. Bye-bye. Kkxx Paradise, K280GL Chico, and
1: K283AR. This hour from TownHall.com. I'm Keith Peters, Attorney General.